Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, we've got a major movement, or what is potentially a major movement, on both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue, at least in attempting to respond to the concerns that have been raised by all the protests we have seen across the country uh, in the wake of George Floyd's killing in uh, Minneapolis. There was a meeting here yesterday, as, as, as you know, I'm at the White House right now, by the way, in, in, our, in our booth here. Uh, the president uh, had a meeting with uh, police officers yesterday, but also with uh, the families of several victims of uh, police violence, uh, including Ahmed Arbery's uh, family. And I, and I wanted to play. I wanted to play something that uh, I think is important as, as we begin this discussion. Uh, important to get a sense of what that meeting was like. There were no cameras there. Uh, this was uh, this was a private meeting. Uh, but we did, we have heard a bit about what was going on, and including this uh, from Ahmed Arbery's mother. I was very very emotional throughout the um, the whole um, conference. Um, he was he was very compassionate. He he showed major concerns for all families, not just one family, but for all families. I can um, say that um, President Trump was very receiving. He listened and he addressed each and every family accordingly. Now, she did also say that uh, she believes that the executive order that the president signed shortly after that meeting does not go anywhere near far enough. But I, but I do just want to you know, think about this meeting, because uh, we also heard a, a readout from the White House, according to the, uh, the, the press secretary. Uh, the president was devastated, that was her word, by what, uh, what he heard from these families, uh, and that there were a lot of tears in the room. And then shortly after the meeting, the president came out to sign his executive order and to speak a little bit on this in the Rose Garden. And for the beginning of the speech, you know, it sounded like a different tone from the president. He was talking about basically making a plea for unity uh, and talking uh, about what he had just heard. But very quickly, the talk in the Rose Garden turned to more about law and order. Take a listen. Americans want law and order. They demand law and order. They may not say it. They may not be talking about it, but that's what they want. Some of them don't even know that's what they want. And the whole emphasis, the whole tone of, of, of his approach out there in the Rose Garden, and the families did not join him. They didn't, you know, perhaps want to be part of a, uh, of a White House photo op. They, they, they wanted to meet with the president, but do it privately. Uh, but, but, the president really at times seemed to be more attacking the protesters, or at least some of the protesters. Take a listen to this. But I strongly oppose the radical and dangerous efforts to defend, dismantle, and dissolve our police departments, especially now when we've achieved the lowest recorded crime rates in recent history. Americans know the truth. Without police, there is chaos. Without law, there is anarchy. And without safety, there is catastrophe. Now, those words, I mean, actually, the, the, the sentiment behind those words could have come from Joe Biden. Biden has also made it clear that he absolutely you know, does not support uh, a move to defund, let alone dismantle or dissolve police departments. But again, the context here, uh, the, the president, after this emotional meeting, coming out to sign an executive order, 
Uh, he made no reference whatsoever to the issue of race in policing, uh, concerns about racial disparities. Uh, there was, in fact, the executive order itself says nothing about race. Uh, so that's that's what we heard uh, from the president. But now, uh, Rick, we have some movement on Capitol Hill. Tim Scott, Republican senator uh, from South Carolina, of course, the only African-American Republican in the Senate, one of just two African-American Republicans in all of Congress, uh, is taking the lead. And you get a sense that there is there is momentum up there. I'm not sure where it leads. There are still significant agreements, but it looks like there may be some something done here. If you're looking for political policy consequences, you are seeing them all over the place. The fact that Mitch McConnell has, has essentially blown up the Senate schedule, moved this to the front of the line, and um, brought forward this bill, and, and basically daring Democrats to oppose uh, the, the proposal the Senate Republicans are putting forward, at the same time that House Democrats are working on their own proposal, a more sweeping series of police reforms. At the same time, the president has issued an executive order. There's a little bit of politics going on here, John, that, that's worth getting into. The, we have an election five months out. We have a president who has taken on significant political damage in the context of the, of the last couple of months, the twin crises of, uh, of policing and police brutality, as well as, of course, COVID-19. And you have Senate Republicans worried about their own jobs here. And there's a recognition that this is a different kind of moment, that this is a major moment coming on a week that will mark the anniversary of Juneteenth, coming on the week of a Trump campaign rally and that resumption of uh, something that might approach normalcy this weekend. All of this comes together to say to Washington and to politicians in both parties, they have to get something done. And as they sort this through, you're seeing a president who's conflicted, frankly. And I think you identified the, the different pressures on him one, to look like he is attuned to this moment. The other, to look like he is in tune with his base. And I have to say it was striking in the Rose Garden to see him do the actual signing of this executive order uh, because, as I mentioned, the, 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 the families of the victims were not there, uh, but he did have police officers with him, and he brought up several police officers uh, to surround him and to be there with him uh, as he signed. And... All of them were white except for one. Um, and, you know, it's just, is, is that the image he wants? He's surrounded by white police officers as he's taking his first action to address the concerns about these protesters that are raising the issue of racism in policing. So I, I, I want to turn briefly, and we've got a, we've got a, a great guest that's going to help us, uh, uh, you know, take a look at, at this, issues and, uh, this issue and where we think it's going. But uh, one, one thing before the break, I also want to address uh, Joe Biden, because Joe Biden uh, had some interesting words about this that were, uh, as you might expect, <laughs> contrasted to uh, to the president's tone. Uh, but he also says something I want to ask you about, Rick, take a listen. But even Dr. King's assassination did not have the worldwide impact that George Floyd's mm -hmm. death did. Because just like television changed the civil rights movement for the better when they saw Bull Connor and his dogs ripping the clothes off of elderly black women going to church and fire hoses ripping the skin off of young kids. That All those folks around the country who didn't have any black populations heard about this, but they didn't believe it, but they saw it. It was impossible to close their eyes. Well, what George Floyd happened to George Floyd, now you got how many people around the country? Millions of Cell phones. Mm -hmm. It's changed the way everybody's looking at this. 
Look at the millions of people marching around the world, the world. So my point is that I think people are really realizing that this is a battle for the soul of America. Who are we? What do we want to be? How do we see ourselves? What do we think we should be? So that's quite a statement. He is saying that the worldwide impact of George Floyd's death will be similar in the same league as the impact and the reaction we saw following the assassination of Martin Luther King. Yeah, it's striking. And I think I want to obviously I want to ask our guest about this as well. I know she's standing by, but I, I feel like recognizing the moment not through the just the historical lens and where this stands in the in the context of the civil rights movement and the long march toward history but also where this stands in terms of this as a as a societal moment as a social moment and the fact that one incident uh, could could crystallize so many of the concerns and and so many of the fears and so many of the worries of generations and galvanize a movement a movement that's already having impact and having a broad impact that uh, is being felt already on the legislative level, is being felt in a range of primary campaigns that happen to be playing out. You've got a bunch of candidates who are drawing energy from the movement that, that we're seeing on the streets. And uh, of course, Joe Biden's hope is that uh, this this all builds toward November and that the, the, the momentum continues through the election and, uh, and well, well beyond. But it has been striking to watch this all happening while we're dealing still with the, the COVID-19 crisis uh, that, uh, of course, the, 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 is still an issue that the president has to deal with and the country has to deal with, to have this, this other social movement move as rapidly as, as we can. I think, I think the vice president makes a valid point that it couldn't happen without um, other, uh, you know, the, the technological infrastructure around that, where society is today. Uh, but it has been a, a rapid, rapid movement just in a couple of weeks since George Floyd's, uh, George Floyd's killing. No doubt about it. Right, Rick, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Leah Wright-Rigger, Associate Professor of Public Policy at Harvard and an ABC News contributor. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by our ABC News colleague, Dr. Leah Wright-Rigger, Associate Professor of Public Policy at Harvard. Thank you very much for joining us, Leah. It's just a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's start where we left off. We just heard uh, Joe Biden say that the worldwide impact of, of George Floyd's killing uh, is something uh, along the order of what we saw in terms of the reaction to the assassination of Martin Luther King. How, how big a moment is this? Well, it's certainly one of the biggest protest moments that we've had in the last 30 years. There's nothing to rival, uh, you know, in recent times, the amount of protests even global protests that we're seeing, not just domestically, the kind of protests that we're seeing on the ground. I think as of today, there have been over 450 protests across the world. So certainly this is a huge moment and it's much bigger than anyone could have anticipated. But a lot of what's playing into it is the fact that there's also a global quarantine happening. And then there are all of these rapid, rapid changes that are happening across countries, across cities, across towns that people can really project onto. So they're seeing something in the murder or the death of George Floyd that they can then turn around and say, this is something worth pro- protesting over. And, we, and we're seeing 
obviously this is this seems to be a, a a social and a cultural movement as well as a political movement we are seeing uh the statues coming down of confederate figures uh and we're seeing you know the political moves on on a local level on a state level and now it's up to congress what is what does congress do on the federal level and, and i i know that you've uh you've written a lot about uh black republicans Right now, there are there's only, in the Senate. There's only Senator Tim Scott, and it seems to fall on his shoulders. What is to be done? He announced uh, his unveiled his plan uh, that, that Mitch McConnell has promised to bring right uh, onto the Senate floor. Uh, but I was struck, and I want to talk to you about the specifics of what Scott is proposing. But I was struck by something he said today at his press conference while he is. Uh, announcing his plan about his own personal experience and his own personal experience just recently. Take a listen. Communities of color and people like myself, uh, I've told my story several times, stopped seven times in one year. Uh, That has been said a lot, but I was stopped this year uh, driving while black when I got a warning ticket for using, failing to use my turn signal earlier in my lane change. And so this issue continues and that's why it's so important for us to say that we hear you i mean we, we've heard tim scott talk about uh, being asked for his id as he's coming into the senate you know a member of the a member of the senate uh but now it's still happening to him what first of all how important is it for the republicans to have somebody who actually has that experience knows what's that knows what that is like It's hugely important. You know, Tim Scott, the loneliness of the black Republican indeed, because he's caught in this really just fascinating and in a lot of ways tragic space where he has to navigate, you know, the the um, the lines of his party, the boundaries of his party. And this includes and we saw this today in the press conference where he had an enormous amount of difficulty saying or talking about ideas of systemic racism, quite literally naming it. Because that's not, you know, the bottom line of his party. His party spokesperson, Donald Trump, um, you know, is like, what is systemic racism? No, I don't believe in that. Or I I don't, you know, I don't have a solution to that. But on the other hand, here he is essentially describing what is institutional systemic racism that happens on a repeated, uh, a repeated uh, uh, attempts, uh, repeated incidents where he is being he is being treated one way because of the uh, because of his race. And so I think one of the things that happens with Tim Scott and remember he made that speech in 2016 about essentially police brutality, targeted racial profiling, all of these things is that he brings a perspective to his party that has been lacking. And it's actually important because it gives his party an avenue to talk about police brutality, systemic injustices and things like that. But the you know the great tragedy of it is that they can't really talk about it in this in this holistic way because they don't necessarily believe in it. So we have seen some movement from Republicans. I mean, they have introduced you know this new bill, but we also see from the contents of the bill that they're not willing to go far enough to address the very things that Tim Scott is also talking about. We've also heard quite a bit of uh, Republican defensiveness on the the even what the what the sentiments are toward systemic racism in society. And we've had White House officials, we've had Republican senators say, we don't believe there's systemic racism. We don't think most people are racist. And it was actually, it was interesting. I want to, I want to hear from Senator Scott on this because he was asked at his news conference, 
just about the difficulties of even defining the term. I don't know how to tell people that the, the, the nation is not racist. I'll try again. We're not a racist country. We deal with racism because there's racism in the country. Both are mutually uh, true. They are both true, not mutually exclusive. So uh, I don't worry about the definitions that people want to use. It's good for headlines, but it's really bad for policy. We're going to focus on getting something done. And I feel like this, this spills over into the, into the policy debate because you have a, a natural defense mechanism that says, wait, most cops aren't bad. This, most cops aren't racist. So to, to bring in all these sweeping reforms and take away powers from police officers, uh, that, that just it, it, it takes out a lot of good people and a lot of good, important policing tactics along with the bad. How, how do you square that with this current moment that you still have uh, you, you have a, a country that doesn't want to accept not just its history, but uh, its present. So I am, I'm actually optimistic about what the country is thinking right now. We've actually seen in the last three weeks a huge cultural shift in what people are willing to believe. So right now it's about 70% of Americans believe, including 70, more than 70% of, of uh, white Americans, believe that racism is a problem, either a significant problem or a major problem for black people in this country. That is a big shift from you know just two years ago, even a year ago. So that says that something is changing and that these protests and you know these incidents are actually affecting public culture and our cultural understanding of the moment. I think part of what people are really grappling with is that they're really trying to define and figure out what racism means. And so one of the things that we see people latch onto is this idea that racism is an individual uh, interaction uh, uh, part and parcel, people interact with one another and that's how they treat one another. But instead, what these protests are showing is that racism, systemic racism, is racism that is not about the individual, but that is built into systems and reinforces these problems, these discriminations, these inequalities and these biases. And so that's what we have to, I think, uh, pay attention to. And that's what people are beginning to really grapple with. How does this, how does this filter in your mind through the, the presidential campaign. Um, we're about five months out. Um, it doesn't always feel like it because politics doesn't always feel top of mind, but um, all of these different storylines are converging with political consequences. And you have a, a Democratic nominee in, in Joe Biden who's got his own complicated history with, um, with, with issues of race, as was well-documented in the primary campaign. Um, he's also been on record very consistently over the last couple of decades for favoring more police. Is that a challenge for the organizing movement? Is it an inconvenient fact for people that want to get behind, uh, for some people that want to get behind the Biden campaign? Um, or it, 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 does it, to, to your mind, highlight other avenues for progress that are separate from politics? How important is the campaign in this? So the campaign is really important. And per what's part particularly important for Joe Biden is who he ends up selecting as vice president, not necessarily because vice president has the power to determine, you know, the election or, or you know, uh, uh, the outcome in November. But whoever he chooses as a running mate signals what they're essentially what Biden and the running mate are going to represent for the party, the Democratic Party and for the nation. So if you choose someone, a running mate, for example, like Amy Klobuchar, who is all but out of the running now, but had we chosen Amy Klobuchar, all of a sudden, 
all of those things, all of those critiques about Biden, particularly his role in the, you know, the crime bill, all of those things become heightened because Amy Klobuchar had a role in, you know, this in uh, uh, this case in Minneapolis and doesn't have the best record. So that is a reminder to people that this is not, you know, this is not a, a clean break. This is not move. Uh, progressive movement forward. It's a reminder of these past inequities and inequalities. Um, and it makes it that much harder for Biden to move forward. So he really needs to focus on someone who is who brings a kind of a pro- progressive unifying vision, right, that can unite, say, protesters on the ground, the center of the party, the left of the party, all these disparate pieces and wings. But I think there's there's one other thing to consider, which is that Joe Biden is also running against somebody who has made it very clear how he feels about policing, right? He made that very clear in his statement. The president of the United States has made it very clear in his statement on, in his executive order on, uh, on policing in the United States, where he stands, where, you know, where his supporters stand, and has been ma- made it very clear that he believes in law and order and dominance, right? Dominance at all costs, which sets up a narrative that casts him as an antagonist against these protesters and against police reform, right? Actual comprehensive police reform. And so what we're going to also look for is how is Joe Biden playing off of that in order to move forward in this uh, in this election process? You, you've brought up the, uh, the the VP selection process. Let me ask you specifically about one of the candidates who, who seems is, is pretty high on the list right now, Val Demings, um, a, obviously somebody who fits much of what you just said, a progressive, but she's also a former police chief. How, how, do, how would that play? Right. And not just a former police chief, but was chief of police of the Orlando police at a point in time when they, when they have one of the worst records of police brutality um, during, you know, this larger history of Orlando policing. So the real, you know, right now what Val Demings has been able to do is position herself as this kind of progressive reformer from Florida who has pretty good, you know, um, pretty good uh, opinion numbers, particularly with black voters. But that's also in part because people don't know a lot about her, right? She's not uh, uh, known in the way that, say, a Harris, a Klobuchar or a Warren are known. Um, I think one of the things that the the Democratic Party is going to really have to think about, particularly as Val Demings rises in the ranks, is what is enough and what are, you know, what are uh, elements that essentially cast somebody out and make move them from being a real contender that brings something to the campaign to being a liability. And one of the things that the Biden campaign is really going to have to think about with Demings, but also with Harris um, as well, is how much does that background, particularly as it relates to police brutality, police brutality, um, how much does that background actually influence how voters perceive the presidential ticket? And I think it is it, it is something to keep in mind, particularly since police brutality reform are going to be heavy on the minds of black voters who make up the backbone of the Democratic Party. So their participation and their turnout is vital to any kind of Democratic victory in November. Dr. Reitringer, what about um, what about um, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms of Atlanta? She's had to deal with uh, another episode, uh, another you know caught on tape episode uh, from from just over the weekend of uh, of police uh, of police violence and, and the killing of a of a man um, after an altercation uh, it, that has roiled Atlanta. There's been 
uh, the, the, the police chief uh, stepping down in the immediate aftermath, um, apparently not happy with the way it was handled. The, the, uh, Mayor Bottoms trying to take very strong, decisive action. Uh, and she's emerged as something of a star of this moment. But what's your sense of, of how she's positioning herself and, and what her prof- profile could bring? So certainly there's been a lot of attention on Keisha Lance Bottoms, and I'm sure that, you know, in the past couple of days, I've heard her name come up as a potential contender, somebody who's on the long list for the vice presidential you know, race. But I think there's the other thing to keep in mind is that Keisha Lance Bottoms also has a larger history with policing and police forces and reform within Atlanta. And so one of the things that we see is this notion um, this larger notion in Atlanta where, you know, the sheriff who was on, I think, TV the other day justifying uh, Rashad Brooks uh, uh, killing um, is black. Right. The mayor is black. All of these people in positions of power who have reinforced the things that lead to these inequalities and inequities are are essentially black, like black leaders and members of black elites. And so. What we're going to what we're going to see is that even as somebody like Keisha Lance Bond is coming to the fore and really trying to position herself as a leader, she's also going to have to deal with those shortcomings and the ways in which particularly when people start to dig into the background in this larger history of Atlanta, they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to come up with a narrative that pushes back against this longer history of, you know, participating or enabling inequalities. So that is another area that makes it a real, I think, makes it a real liability moving forward. Leah, thank you for joining us. It's really great to have you on the ABC uh, team, and we hope you'll come back and talk to us again. I think we've, we've barely scratched the surface here. I'm sure we'll be calling on you again soon. Oh, well, thanks for having me. So, uh, Rick, First of all, I love that discussion going through uh, the, uh, the, the the VP, the potential, the, the, the ups and downs of, of, of the various VP candidates. And I think we can agree that Biden's calculus has changed entirely over the past few weeks. Events matter in the VP stakes. And that's one of the things that make them as interesting as they do. I think uh, a couple of months ago, right when he was wrapping up the primaries, you could look and say, well, Amy Klobuchar's stock is high, Elizabeth Warren is someone that unites the progressive wing. Um, the likelihood of, of Vice President Biden choosing a candidate of, of color is, to my mind, approaching 99%. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it just doesn't it doesn't seem like you're in tune with this moment if you don't do that. We already know he's choosing a woman. He said that no one's ever made that kind of pledge before. But there's the further narrowing there. And, uh, you know, to add to the names, I, I've been told that, this, that Susan Rice uh, is is a, is a real contender as well. Um, uh, obviously, that comes with different discussions and uh, different memories of the of the Obama administration. But, you know, the short list in some ways gets shorter uh, because of the the new urgencies that, that surround this. And I think I was talking to a Democrat about this the other day, John, and, and interested in your thoughts that you know, the, the focus on the vice presidential search in the absence of uh, Vice President Biden trying to make news on a regular basis, it, it consuming a whole lot of oxygen. It may be that Democrats are expecting too much out of this uh, out of this vice president uh, vice presidential choice because, as as you just heard from from Leah Wright Rigger, uh, everyone's got their flaws. There's yeah, no perfect candidate one, there. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, so the idea that you could pick someone that's going to answer all of these issues that that Biden has or that or that the party has, it's not realistic. And there's going to be blowback, and you have to be prepared for that. And um, let's face it, this is a this is a big moment in this country. It's it is still a big moment for the campaign. 
Um, the polls have been suggesting good news for, for Joe Biden, but I don't know anyone that's that's willing to to really trust that and say uh, this is entirely his to lose. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. All right. Well, Rick, and maybe next uh, week we can try to crack the code and figure out who it's going to be. But uh, that is all the time we have for powerhouse politics. Um, and uh, Rick, I am get just got word that we had a press conference uh, with the uh, the or a briefing with the press secretary added to our schedule. So I am going to run and do that. And I'll talk to you again soon next week or maybe another emergency podcast in our future.